You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I went hiking in the snow uh, over the weekend. I like uh, to get out on these trails, kind of out near the Potomac, and sometimes I'll just get out in the hills to random places, deer trails. Uh, it's, it's where I go to work on messages. Uh, many of a sermon has been preached to the squirrels out along the Potomac before I deliver them here. And, uh, but I was out there this weekend after all that snow, and I was walking in an area I was somewhat familiar with, uh, but the trail was entirely gone. And so at one point I was like, I know I'm trying to get to the Potomac River, and I know it's generally that way, but I can't see the trail at all. But then I saw all these uh, deer prints in the snow. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to follow these and uh, see where they lead, which is not necessarily always the best advice. Depends on where you want to go. But it was fun to kind of walk them and go, yeah, you know what? These, these guys led me right to the waterfront of the Potomac. And I thought, you know, that, that'll preach. There's something about that. If you're trying to find the water source, you need to follow the feet of those who need that source to survive. That's what you want to do, right? Uh, that you walk the trail of those who desperately desire the destination, right? They need it. It's not just a novelty. And so if I follow the feet of those in desperation, I'll find the source of their desire, right? Now, why mention that? Because we've been in this series called Call on Heaven. And we've been talking about how we want to be a church that calls on heaven. We want to be a prayerful people, not just vaguely spiritual, but people who really know God and really know what it is to be men and women transformed as a result of being in his presence. And yet I know when as soon as I say that, many of us go, yeah, I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to be in that place. I don't know how to be that kind of person. Like, then we got guides for everything. Guides on how to work out, guides on nutrition, guides on investing. Who will guide me into being a truly spiritual man or a woman? And we've been looking in the series at different guides that can lead us to the source of life. And in the first week, what we discovered was that what will often energize our initiative to seek the Lord is a desperation for him. And we followed the footsteps of Jehoshaphat, a king in the Old Testament, that got to a moment of crisis where he realized, I got a problem bigger than me, and my military and political solutions are insufficient. And so he was desperate enough that three times the text said he sought the Lord. And that word seek means to trample. He, he beat a path into the presence of the Lord. And we said, we need to follow those footsteps that for many of us, what will make us a praying people? Desperation's a good motivation. You get scared enough. You realize the forces outside of me are bigger than what's in me. Desperation can lead you to do some dangerous things or it can lead you to the one who can do something about it. And Josephat taught us, hey, seek the Lord. Why? Because he is the Lord over the nations. We come to a God who rules the kingdoms of men and women. And that gives us confidence, right? And in the second week, what we learned was, hey, desperation may open the door to us being a prayerful people, but it's a desire for God's presence that will make us linger there. And we followed the footsteps of people like David. King David, who said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. 
He says, deer start to pant for water. They long for it. Why do they long for it? Because that's what was made to satisfy them. It's what their body needs. And he says, my soul longs to be satisfied. And many of us know what that feels like, but we've been going to different places to try to get a solution. We've been going to distractions and addictions, successes, and, and all kinds of different things. When we realize, no, my soul was made not just by him, but for him. And like a deer makes a trail to that water, my soul is longing for the Lord who made it, that I would find satisfaction in him. In your presence is fullness of joy, David says, right? And so we follow the footsteps of a, God, of a guy like that because we realize, hey, I want to enter the presence of the Lord. But for many of us, we, we hesitate to do that because we know we're dirty. We know we're sinners. And so there's a fear of being a sinful person in the presence of a holy God. That's what makes a lot of people not even want to come to church, right? And yet what's beautiful about the gospel is we find we have a sympathetic high priest, that Jesus is one who's lived like us, that he walked among us, faced temptation like us. He knows what it is to be a tempted and a tried people. And yet where we stumble, he was victorious. But rather than lord it over us, he offers grace to forgive us. I lived the perfect life you could not. I died the death you deserved, not to lord it over you, but to open the door to say, I'm taking your sin away and I'm giving my righteousness to you. I will take your penalty, you get my sonship. And I open the door that you can approach the throne of grace and confidence because you have a sympathetic high priest. Jesus Christ opens the door and says, when you come into the presence of a holy God, yes, there's fear of his holiness, but when you walk through that door, what you meet with is friendship. It's like we said last week, like meeting a lion in all its terrifying power that licks your face. And you go, you never quite lose the fear, but there's a power in knowing there's a friendship with the fear that I get to be loved. I get grace extended to me by an almighty God. Then I want to linger in his presence. There's forgiveness there. There's hope there. He teaches me like a father does a child. Where else would I want to be? That's what David discovered. I'm not being forced to prayer. In your presence is fullness of joy. I would better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. I'd rather be a door holder in the courts of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. He says, hey, it's desperation that may lead you to prayer. But when you really get to know God, it's a desire for him that'll make you linger there. And our hope is that we would be that kind of people that we love to linger in the presence of the Lord. And yet, let's say that happens. Desperation kickstarts it. Desire causes us to linger there. Some may go, okay, Ben, but let's say we do it. Let's say we become a church that calls on heaven. We become a praying people. What's the destination of all this? What are we ultimately asking God for? Like, what are we looking for here? And what I want to do today is, is follow two guides. Uh, one from about 120 years ago and one from roughly 2,000 years ago. We'll start with the 2,000, and I mean the Apostle Paul. Because Paul will do something interesting. You know, we talked about guides to prayer. Uh, Paul will use, uh, in all his letters he wrote to the church, there'll be moments at the top of them where he'll often uh, say what he's praying for the church. And they're beautiful prayers. They're good things to pray for yourself. You can read them and be like, yeah, me too. I want that. You know, and, and they're good prayers to pray for ourselves. But then often he'll end these letters uh, by commanding us, hey, pray for us. And so if you're wondering, well, Ben, I don't know what to pray for. There's verses that say, pray this. It's a good place to start. Then he's saying, hey, church, pray these things. And he's going to give us the reasons why we pray, the purpose behind all our prayers, the cause of our calling on heaven. And what's interesting is, and I read you three endings of three of his letters, there's a remarkable consistency in the message. 
And whenever you see that, you should pay attention. That repetition is a way to emphasize things in the Bible. And so Paul will call us to some things. So what I want to do in our time is I just want to briefly look at these three passages. I'm going to give you three points about the purpose of prayer. And then I'm going to conclude by illustrating with one story. All right. So to look at the three passages, we'll start actually with 1 Thessalonians 5. I didn't read that one to you, and that doesn't count as one of the three. This is a jump starter. Okay? Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul ended the letter to them, and he just said, brothers, pray for us. And it's a command. Hey, if you're in the family of God, pray for us. But then he doesn't tell them what to say. And so in 2 Thessalonians, he says the exact same statement. Brothers, pray for us. But then he tells them what to pray. And we get two clauses that give us kind of the content of what we're supposed to pray. Uh, they give us the purpose of our prayer. So in 2 Thessalonians, says, brothers, pray for us. And that pray is present active. Keep doing it. Persevere in seeking God on our behalf. For what purpose? Number one, he says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. I love that. That, that word speed ahead is literally the word run. He says, may the word of God run into the world. That may the knowledge of the glory of God spread to every place. May what we do in here fill the streets out there. That's what he prays. That, that the message of the grace of God available through the sacrifice of Jesus would come to everybody. That people could know and be transformed by a loving relationship with God. Pray that that message of the grace of God would run unhindered into the world. And then he says, and pray when it gets there that it would be honored that people would see it as precious, see it as valuable. So he says, pray for the progress of the gospel. That's the first thing he prays for. And then the second thing he prays for is, hey, pray for the progress of the gospel and for the protection of the people who deliver it. Uh, that's the next clause. He says, and may we be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. He says, pray that the good news of Jesus would spread, but know when it does, there'll be opposition to the expansion you'll get rejected because of your allegiance to the king. It'll come for you. He says, it's coming, so pray for the advancement of the gospel and for the protection of the people who deliver it. Uh, it's interesting, last week we talked about having a time and a place to pray, you know, and uh, different people have different prayer moments. I, I had a friend who uh, has a prayer closet in their house. It's a place they designated just to go pray. I know some people that maybe pick a, a park bench on their way to work, and they go, that's where I go and, and sort of dump all my cares on the Lord, and I leave them there, and then I head on to work, right? That's a great thing to do. For me, I have a chair uh, in my study, and that's where I go every day and sort of meet with the Lord and pray and, and uh, cast my cares upon Him. And so in that chair, uh, right outside of it, there's, there's a little statue in our backyard of St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, when we bought this house, there was a little statue of St. Francis that came with it that was sitting right on top of the septic tank. I don't know why, but we, we kept it there. We just called him St. Francis of the septic. There he is, right outside the door. And uh, several months ago, my son, with no malice in his heart, like threw a football, I think. And, you know, it was just, there was no even aiming. It was just the flailing of limbs. And, uh, but that football hit St. Francis directly in the face and uh, smashed it smashed his face off, which was interesting. He didn't take his head off, just took his face off. Uh, it was very disturbing to my son. He was distraught that he had literally defaced uh, St. Francis. Um, but as I go to pray every day, it sits right in my field of view. As a symbol and reminder to me, saints get smashed in the face. 
You just got to know that's coming when this time's over. In Jesus' name, amen, right? That's how it goes. And it's not just for vocational ministers. Paul said, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. You really want to be a godly man or woman? There will be people that don't like God, so they don't like you. And so Paul says, hey, pray for us. Be a praying church. Persevere in it to what? For the progress of the gospel and protection of those who will share it. That's what he prays for. You see it? And then he asks them to be steadfast in Christ Jesus. And that Colossians passage, we see a similar emphasis. Colossians 4.2, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer. I love it. It's the word devoted. Be devoted to prayer. If you talk about someone, you say they're devoted to a task. What does that mean? It means their mind is set on it. They're fixed on it. They care about it. And they work to get good at it. They're getting good at their job. They're getting good at working out. They're getting good at crafting words. They're getting good at making money. If I'm devoted to a craft, I'm thinking about it. I care about it. And I'm working on it. And he says, get good at prayer. Think about it. Develop it. Become somebody who works the muscles of prayer. Be devoted to it. Being watchful. That, that means be aware of what's happening in the world. Pray with the news open in front of you. And with thanksgiving. Remember the prayers prayed before that he answered, or maybe mercifully didn't answer. Because prayers answered in the past will motivate prayers in the present. So he says, be devoted to prayer. There's a perseverance there with watchfulness and thanksgiving. And then he says, at the same time, pray for us. For what, Paul? That God may open to us a door for the word. So he doesn't pray for them, let the word run. He says, let a door get opened for it to go through. I love the metaphors. Pray that God would open a door and the gospel would go running out, right? But he says, pray that God would open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. He says, pray for opportunities for the gospel to go forth and pray for clarity of its proclamation when it does. I love it because he told the Corinthians when he was on his way to Ephesus, he said, pray for me, a wide door of effective ministry has been opened and many oppose me. And I love that conjunction. He doesn't say a door of ministry was opened, but many oppose me. He says, no, a wide door was opened and many oppose me. He says, I got a chance to preach there and it's going to hurt, but I'm going. And off he goes. And that's why we get a letter to the Ephesians, the queen of the epistles, because Paul was faithful to run through that open door for the progress of the gospel. But he says, pray for me, that when I get there, God would give us opportunity to proclaim the mystery, which is what? That Jesus Christ wasn't just a Messiah to one people group, but to all people. He's a God who wants to bring all of us into the presence of God. And so pray for that opportunity and for clarity. And then in Ephesians, our last passage, Ephesians 6, we won't do the whole armor of God. It's beautiful. But in verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. What's beautiful about that is this idea of the helmet of salvation. It's not Paul's idea. He actually got it from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah is talking about a particularly wicked day. And he says, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot enter. He said, we are in days of such wickedness that truth has stumbled in the public square. In the places where politics and policy was decided, truth has stumbled. People are lying to get political power. Can you imagine? It happened centuries ago. And he says, an uprightness cannot be found. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He says, we were in a wicked day, 
And I looked for a man who could fix it. And there was no human being that could solve the amount of evil I saw. But then he says, he saw there was no man, wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Whose helmet is it? It's the Lord's. That he says, I saw that the world was devastated in sin. Who will save them? They can't save themselves. And so what happened? We know the son of God, Jesus Christ, strapped up and went to war on our behalf. I will fight sin. I will fight death. I will fight the devil. What you are powerless to overcome, I will. I will face every temptation and I will cast it aside. I'll live the perfect life you could not. And then the penalty for your sin, I will bear it on the cross. I will bury it and then I will rise victorious over it. So the battle of salvation has already been fought. And so what I love about the helmet of salvation is it's not that we have to strap up and try to earn our way to heaven. Jesus already fought it. And then he takes the helmet off after victory and drops it on our head like a dad does a kid. Says, hey, son, keep that as a souvenir. You don't have to fight to get approval of God's. You already have it. And so we wear that helmet as a reminder that he fought for me, that I am saved. I got a future. I got hope. Why? Because Jesus fought on my behalf. So I take up the confidence that I know I'm his. And when I do that, I take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When you pray, he says, have the news open in one hand, be watchful, and then have the word of God open in another hand. Then I'm praying his eternal word into my current state. And as I do that, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance that I'm keeping my mind engaged. But even at times, the spirit of God groans in me when words can't express it. And yet in the midst of that, I'm offering up all kinds of prayers. I'm persevering in it with supplication. And he says, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And what's wild is he had death as a legitimate alternative in front of him. He might die there. But what he prays is not get me out of here. He's like, hey guys, pray for me. I'm in prison. They may kill me. Pray God will give me a shot to share the gospel with them. What? That's pretty wild. That's focused prayer. That's changing of an empire kind of prayer, which here's the interesting thing. If you read through 2 Timothy, and I won't preach it now, 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul ever wrote. At the end of his life, he did get to go on trial in front of Caesar himself. And he said, and I proclaimed the gospel before kings and I was saved from the lion's mouth. That this prayer got answered. Pray that God would open the door, give me opportunity and pray not just for protection, but pray for power that I would proclaim boldly this message. It deserves to be said with authority because it's true. The grace of God is available to all who will call on his name. So what's our three points? How do we call on heaven? We persevere in prayer. Don't give up. Labor at it. Linger in God's presence. Work at persevering in prayer. That's why we call this a season of prayer and fasting. Consider fasting, taking something out of your schedule to devote more time to prayer. Some of you, it's taking a meal away so that rather than eat, you, you sit with the Lord and pray in that season. 
for others of you, it's, hey, I'm, I'm going to get rid of social media or something like that. I, I know for Don and I, we, we got rid of different things in our lives so we could focus more on prayer in this season. And, and Donna, as part of that, got rid of social media. For me, there were some media sites that I liked going to for the news. And then I realized this morning, hey, I think they've become a real distraction for me, that some of these sites I went to aren't giving me news. They're giving me a lot of anger and crazy and weird stuff and stress. And maybe I should devote the time I was spending reading that to prayer. And then I found I didn't want to delete it. I liked it. I had a struggle this morning, family. Am I going to get rid of some things to persevere in prayer? I didn't want to do it. I had to text two different people. Hey, I think the Lord wants me to delete some apps and I don't want to do it. Give me strength. And then I was like, fine, in Jesus' name, right? And deleted them. And uh, I feel good. I'll keep you informed. I'll let you know how it goes. But I want to persevere in prayer and get good at it. And, and I'm going to move some things out so I can get good at being in his presence, right? Not because he's telling me to, but because I want to. I want to be that kind of person who calls on heaven. So that's how we do it. But why do we persevere in prayer? Why do we call on heaven? For the progress of the gospel that the world might know him, that the glory of God would fill these streets, that people who are far from God can know heaven doesn't frown on them. The grave isn't their end. They have a hope and a future in Jesus. And we pray for protection for us as we proclaim it, because even though it's a message of grace and love, there are many who oppose it. And so we pray for protection and power as we boldly tell our neighbors and coworkers and family and friends about the love of God available in Jesus Christ. Now, Normally, when you give a sermon, you read a scripture, give a point, illustrate that point, apply it, and then move to your second point and do that. If you've noticed, we've not been doing that at all. I gave you all the scripture up top, and then all the points here in the middle. There's a way of conceiving of the sermon. It's kind of a mess. But uh, what I could do is now go through each of those points and, and illustrate them. Let me illustrate perseverance in prayer, how often Jesus uses examples and metaphors to tell us to do that, how his brother James did the same. And I could do that, I'm not gonna do it. I could talk about the progress of the gospel, how in the early church they prayed boldly that God would advance and, and Rome itself became infiltrated with the gospel that spread so that the Roman Empire is gone and yet Christianity is still growing and expanding. I'm not gonna do all that. I could talk about praying for the perseverance of ministers and, and how even today, uh, a recent survey found that over 40% of ministers have seriously thought about quitting. Uh, the ministry, they're so discouraged. So praying for the protection and power of God's minister. Uh, I'm not discouraged, by the way. I'm okay. But, uh, but pray for me. Uh, but I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is I want to close with a story uh, that I think illustrates all these things together. And what I want to tell you about is a story of something that happened uh, roughly 120 years ago. It was a, a massive and mighty culture-shaping movement of God in Wales. That in Wales, what's called an awakening, a revival happened. And it's not just that churches got bigger, but it's that churches began to take seriously their, their call to seek the Lord. And then what they did in here didn't stay in here, but the culture began to change as a result of what was changing inside the people of God. And so it's interesting, Sam Storms is a pastor today, and, and uh, he wrote an article of, of 10 things that were true of the Welsh revival that you should know. And if you went to like a Christian school, you probably studied this in school, but for many of you, me included, 
uh, you didn't maybe grow up hearing how God moved in power in Wales. I want to talk about this because I think it illustrates these points I was making of what Paul called us to pray for. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Pastor Louis, uh, pastor of Passion City Church in Atlanta and, and over the Passion Movement, uh, you know, before we did that conference in January with 55,000 young people from literally all over the world, those of us who were going to speak on the platform and lead worship, we gathered together in Austin like two months before and uh, just gathered in a living room. And what we did in that living room was not um, strategize the sessions. Well, you read, lead these three songs, then I'll preach this text, and you come up and do that. There was no strategy. We literally, those of us who were about to lead, got together, and all we did was, was call on heaven. We, we prayed. We encouraged each other with testimonies of the Lord's faithfulness. And, and, and if you're a strategist, you go like, well, was that an economic use of time? You know, but you go, I, I don't know. But, but we, we sought the Lord together, and the Lord did something in our hearts that, that birthed a, a unity, a real lack of ego, and I think had real spiritual power as we led in that time. And, and yet in this moment, uh, Pastor Louis read us this account uh, that Sam Storms gave of um, the revival in Wales of 1904. And what's interesting is Sam Storms begins by quoting a different pastor from 1904, Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. Uh, he was a pastor in London, and he delivered a very unusual sermon also, sometimes that happens. Uh, Sam Storm says to G. Campbell Morgan, he says, contrary to his normal practice of expanding a passage of Scripture, he proceeded to tell his people about the remarkable things that the Spirit of God was doing in Wales. Uh, and I love this. Uh, Sam Storms describes him. He says, G. Campbell Morgan was a perceptive man, a sane and balanced and highly respected pastor. And having heard of the revival that had broken out in Wales and unwilling to accept anything on hearsay, he personally traveled to Wales to observe for himself what, if anything, God was doing. And upon returning, he said this on Christmas Day in 1904. I say to you, beloved, without any hesitation, this whole thing is of God. That's a visitation in which he is making men conscious of himself. What would that look like for us to call on heaven and heaven say, yes? What was happening in Wales? Let me give you 10 things that were true of them that I pray will be true here. Number one, he points out that the principal human agent used by God in the Welsh revival was Evan Roberts. Uh, Evan Roberts was born in 1878, died in 1951, worked in the coal mines at age 12. That's tough. And around 13, decided this was not his career of preference uh, and went into ministry uh, and began to study in ministry. Evan Roberts was 26 years old when this revival broke out interesting thing in church history. Often when God does a powerful work in a people, it often starts among the youngest among us, those in their 20s. Uh, he was 26. And what's different about him, though, is he had been praying for God to revive himself and his people for 13 years. Uh, right before this revival broke out, for a few months prior, he records that he would get woken up at 1 a.m. and would just pray from one to five. It was like God was preparing him for what was about to break out among his people. And so from one to five, for, for several weeks, he would pray and seek the Lord. It was said of Evan Roberts that he was not a brilliant speaker or preacher, yet his audience were captivated by his words. And so, quote, what is the secret of the spell he wielded over that audience? Is it his learning or eloquence? Nothing of the kind. 
The secret of his power is that he was, quote, full of faith and love and zeal in the Holy Spirit. He was simple, plain, and unimpressive so that God might get all the credit and the glory for what happened. Isn't that great? The other thing that was said of Evan Roberts is that he was filled with joy. Uh, This was a day when most people thought religion was supposed to be austere. Don't you dare smile in the presence of God. And yet someone remarked the most striking feature of this revival was the joyousness and radiant happiness. It was remarked that the essence of this movement was mirth. Isn't that great? Number two, most believe the beginning of the revival was during a prayer meeting. That it wasn't some fascinating sermon that animated them. They were all praying together. In the midst of the praying, this young woman stood to her feet and spoke softly with a trembling voice, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And the pathos and passion of her avowal was like an electric shock upon the congregation. And many look and say, that was the moment where things began to change as they sought the Lord in prayer. What was the cause of it all? The third point about this revival was that most believed it was the result of earnest, agonizing prayer. Evan Roberts prayed daily for 13 years, but there was numerous other prayer groups in Wales that had prayed for years. One observer said, if it be asked why the fire of God fell on Wales, the answer is simple. Fire falls where it is likely to catch and spread. As one has said, Wales provided the necessary tinder. Here were thousands of believers, unknown to each other, in small towns and villages and great cities, crying to God day after day for the fire of God to fall. This was not merely a little talk with Jesus, but daily agonizing intercession. Number four was that revival broke out and spread without any advertisement or commercials or posters telling of the meetings that were being held. There was no hype. Number five is that people were saved. Approximately 70,000 people came to faith in Jesus in the first two months. 100,000 during the course of the revival. Number six, there was a noticeable absence of preaching during the revival. Not because it was devalued, but because great preaching had preceded and precipitated the move of the Spirit. One pastor said they had heard the word but this was the time of response. Number seven was that what marked this revival was an intense passion for Jesus, which if I can make a note, I believe that's what revival is. It's interesting. I'll talk to some people. Sometimes they're like, man, we're just begging God for revival. We're begging God for revival. Like God is a means unto this end. And he is. God is the one who brings revival. But what is revival? What are we asking for? An emotional experience? Moral discipline? No, if you look in the history of the church, a revival is what? A reviving of our passion for the Lord. That he's the fountain from which all proceeds. That he is the fountain of living water. That he is our great joy. He is our prize. That what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. What gets revived is our passion for the Lord. And so God is the means and God is the end. And what was the truth in Wales was this, that there was a revived passion for Jesus, not just rote performance of religious duty, but no, I love this man who gave his life for me. 
a little side note here. One of my favorite preachers this, uh, I listened to growing up would tell the story in Texas of a hailstorm, which are not frequent in Texas. But uh, there was one that came suddenly and unexpected, and hailstorms the size of baseballs were crashing to the ground. And there were some couples that were having a picnic out in the field and uh, were nowhere near cover. But as these baseball-sized hails began to rain down, they started to run for the tree line, but realized it's too far, they're not going to make it. And so one of the husbands just grabbed his wife and pulled her in close. And she recounted later that she could hear the concussive force of these hailstones hit her husband as he shielded her from the blows. And then she heard the crack of the one that hit his head. And yet before he lost consciousness, his last waking act was to make sure he fell on her so he could continue to shield her from the onslaught. And then the pastor asked us, what do you think her response was in the hospital when she saw those scars? That he took those wounds for me, that he took the hit so I might go free. I think she loved those scars because the wounds were emblems of love. And that's what the church is meant to be like. As the bride of Christ, he presents that picture that we're like the joy of a wedding day. We were at a wedding yesterday. It's a joyous thing to be at a wedding. Two people coming together and Jesus Christ says, I want to love my church like a husband loves a bride. And he gave himself up for her. If sin is separating you from God, he who knew no sin will become sin. If the wages of sin is death, I will take the hit on the cross that the concussive force of the wrath of God against sin will land on me and bury me in the grave, but I won't stay dead. And I will take the penalty of sin away. One day it's very presence away, but I'll put my spirit in you that my power's dwelling in you. And so Jesus Christ gives us a hope and a confidence. We get to enter the throne room of God by grace. And so the Christian, we don't just... And, and uh, adhere to religious duties. We love the one who bore those pains for us. Those scars are precious to us, right? Yes, amen. Yes, they are. That there is a revival of a passion for the one who gave his life for us. There was also a remarkable widespread passion for singing. That's number eight. G. Campbell Morgan said, when the Welshman sings, they sing the words like men who believe them. Isn't that great? I actually mean that. That's awesome. Number nine was an overwhelming feature or sense of God's presence. One pastor said, if one was asked to describe in a word the outstanding feature of those days, one would unhesitatingly reply it was a universal, inescapable sense of the presence of God. The Lord had come down. A sense of the Lord's presence was everywhere. It pervaded, nay, created a spiritual atmosphere. Said another, eternal issues were discussed freely and unashamedly. And above all, a sense of the presence and holiness of God pervaded every area of human experience. At home, at work in shops, in public houses, eternity seemed inescapable and real. And number 10, there were prolonged meetings of prayer and praise. People wanted to get together to seek the Lord. Now, what was the result of this awakening? Here's where I want to close. These people earnestly called on heaven and God began to kindle afresh a fire of their affections for him within the church. And then whenever that happens, what happens? 
as they persevere in prayer, the prayers become that what you're doing in here fill the streets out there, that may the gospel of grace progress and may it go out in power. What was the result in Wales? It's what I'm praying will be the result here. Listen to this. During the time of the revival, the police were left with virtually nothing to do and the courts were empty. Isn't that amazing? As God began to move in the hearts of people, police officers got bored because there was no crime. Some of you don't even believe that's possible. It happened then. Lord, let it happen now. Do we have the faith to pray like that? Saloons and bars shut down for lack of business. Public drunkenness was almost non-existent. Old debts, many long forgotten, were paid off in full. Traveling theatrical agencies canceled their engagements because everyone was in church. This one's my favorite. Profanity disappeared. It was said the horses everywhere were in complete confusion. They had become so accustomed to responding to their master's profane shouts and kicks and cursing, virtually all of which had disappeared. Horses were accustomed to responding to profanity, and when there wasn't any, they didn't know what to plow. At one rugby match, a pastor said he heard only one man cursing, who thereupon repented. Of the 40,000 present, 10,000 began singing hymns. Relationships were healed. Marriages restored. And this last description sums it up the best. It was plainly evident now to everybody that God had answered the agonizing prayer of his people and had sent a mighty spiritual upheaval. A sense of the Lord's presence was everywhere. His presence was felt in the homes, on the streets, in the mines, factories, schools, even the drinking saloons. So great was his presence felt that even the places of amusement and carousal became places of holy awe. Many were the instances of men entering taverns, ordering drinks, then turning on their heels and leaving them untouched. Wales up to this time was in the grip of football fever when tens of thousands of working class men fought and talked only of one thing. And they gambled as a result of the games. Now the famous football players themselves got converted and joined the open air street meetings to testify what glorious things the Lord had done for them. Many of the teams were disbanded as the players got converted and the stadiums were empty. So on that Christmas day in 1904, G. Campbell Morgan closed his sermon by saying this, let no man hear of what happened in Wales and try to start it in his own land. Why? Because no man started it in Wales. We can't produce revival, but we can pray that God would be gracious and send it in abundance. We can persevere and pray for the progress of the gospel, for the perseverance and the power of his saints as what God kindles in here fills the streets out there, that we would be in a city that could know the grace and kindness of God through Jesus and be so changed within that it changes the way we treat each other without, that we truly love our neighbor, that we outdo one another in showing honor, that we pray for our political rivals. Can you imagine that we love one another, that these streets are filled with the grace and kindness of God because we're filled with the grace and kindness of God? Do we believe that's possible? We can't make it happen, but God can't. 
that's light work. He can do that whenever he wants. The question he's asking is, will you persevere in praying to the God of revival? Can we come before him and consecrate ourselves before God who came towards us when we move towards him, believing that he will reward those who seek him? If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.